0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel. We're going to pick up where we left off last time, which was in the middle of a verse. How about that? We left off in the middle of a verse. That'll become clear in a moment here, as so we did it on purpose. <laughs> kind of sounds unfinished unfish- when you put it like that, doesn't it? We left off in the middle of a verse. John 19, and you'll notice that uh, many of you will have a subheading ab- uh, above the last section of verse 16. Uh, probably, maybe not all of us, but if you have an ESV open, you'll have the subheading, the crucifixion. And then underneath it, you'll have the remaining part of verse sixteen. We're going to begin right there with the words "So they took Jesus," and we're going to try to get through the rest of the chapter. It's a lot of material, so we're going to be here a long time. I'm just just kidding. No, try not to make it any longer than normal. Kylie was thinking about staying in the service this morning, and uh, she made a comment. You know, you can really talk a long time. So <laughs> I said, okay, fair enough. So, but she's soon going to be staying in the congregation with us here. She, I think she was worried I was going to talk too long. So I trust everyone has found it. John 19, the last half of verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I am king of the Jews. The Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tire it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And after this... Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and about seventy-five pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing as we strive and seek to uh, uh, profit from your word, as we seek to gain understanding, as we seek, Father, we do um, offer our hearts to you this morning, Lord, that you would be pleased, Lord, to take our hearts and to shape our hearts, to mold our hearts, Father, that, Father, we would find ourselves being made more and more in the likeness of Jesus. Father, these truths here would not just simply be given to satisfy a theological curiosity, which we are theologically curious, Father, but more than that, Father, that these truths would be given to us, uh, Father, for your glory, that you'd be glorified by seeing us become more and more like Jesus, that your church would be purified, that we would walk ever closer to you, that our hearts would be ever more surrendered to you, O Father. So, Father, in short, be glorified as we, as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said in um, the opening remarks, this is a long, a long passage, and there's a lot of material here. And the purpose this morning in taking such a long passage is to kind of take a bird's-eye view. I want to uh, draw really two thoughts from the passage this morning. And one, and I think these thoughts are both really pertinent to the to the anxious times that we find ourselves in, and it's that in spite of all human opposition, in spite of everything that um, all the human components and parties that are involved in this, in spite of all of their efforts to thwart what God is doing, God nevertheless perfectly causes His. Uh, plan of salvation to move forward. Does that make sense? And we're going to see this over and over and over again. Uh, irregardless of everything they're throwing at this, they're unable to stop God in bringing his perfect plan of salvation perfectly in accordance with just the way he planned it. Now, when we look, as I've already remarked, we're really starting in the middle of a of a verse here, We read these words at the end of verse 16, so they took Jesus. And before we go any further there, let us be reminded that they only took Jesus because he first laid his life down, right? You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to remind us of some verses that I think we probably know really, really well uh, from John 10. And you don't need to turn there, but all the way back in John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again and I'll sound familiar. He goes on to say, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Jesus is not being taken by surprise here. This is all going according to plan. And in fact, we saw in the garden when probably no less than 200 soldiers, a combination of Roman soldiers and temple police enter into the garden. Could have been as perhaps there's many scholars who believe there could have been as many as 600 go into the garden with their torches and their lanterns and their swords. They're expecting some possible resistance. They're expecting Jesus to be hiding in the shadows and in the darkness of the night. And to their surprise, what does he do? He steps forward and introduces himself. It's not usually what happens uh, when uh, police officers arrest someone, is it? Uh, Jesus steps forward offers both hands for the shackles. And we've seen this. We've made a number of comments on it. And when we read these words in John 19, verse 16, uh, so they took Jesus. Let us be reminded afresh that they took Jesus because he offered himself to them. And we're told that he went out in verse 17. Now, of course, this is going outside of the city. Jesus is bearing that dreadful curse, isn't he? And uh, this curse is to be taken outside of the city. We're told that he is bearing his own cross. And the images that many of us have in our minds as we think and read about these verses are images that we've seen from movies, from Christian art, maybe from paintings, from song. And one thing we always have to be mindful of when it comes to Christian art is sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't get it right. Um, So many of our images... Uh, they, they, they may have a mixture and probably do have a mixture of truth and a mixture of falsehood. Some of us may envision Jesus as dragging the entire cross behind him, but we have reason to believe that what Jesus was asked to carry was the cross beam. And some of us probably know that. Um, he's being asked to carry the cross beam. There were actually three different types of crosses. Some were in the form of an X Others were just simply a wooden pole, if you will, a vertical pole. And then, of course, there was a third type that was often referred to as the Roman dagger, and that's the part that many of us are familiar with. Some of us have necklaces. Um, That would be the Roman dagger, uh, if you will, and that is the familiar cross um, sign that uh, we're all familiar with. And the cross beam on the Roman dagger is, in all likelihood, what Jesus has asked Uh, to carry. This is what he is bearing. And this was part of crucifixion. And we know that Jesus would have been flogged prior to this. And we've talked about that, haven't we? Uh, I I believe fully that Jesus was flogged twice, once with a lesser flogging. Uh, He was flogged and humiliated in one of Pilate's attempts to release Jesus. But there is no question that the flogging that is reflected in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel is of the most severe type. And it often, there were often, criminals often died from that flogging alone. It was that severe. And it's not uh, surprising that we learn from the other gospel writers that Jesus was unable to carry his crossbeam all the way to the place where he was crucified. And another had to step in and to assist him. But here we find Jesus bearing his cross in verse 17 to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over why this place is called the place of a skull. And this, uh, uh, this rhetoric is intermixed with conjecture. It's intermixed with uh, really outright fable in some, uh, some cases. Uh, Many believe that Adam's actual skull was buried there. Some of you maybe have heard that before. Uh, Others, probably more popularly, believe that the hill uh, nearby looked like a human skull. Some deny it. Some say it was. Um, I, I, I will say I have no idea why it was called the place of the skull. I don't believe we know. I believe it has been lost to us. Perhaps, uh, it, perhaps we will know at some time, but right now, I really don't know. All I can tell you is that it was called that, and sometimes referred to Golgotha. Uh, when Golgotha is brought in the Latin language, and then from the Latin language brought into the English language, we get the word Calvary. Many of us have heard of Calvary's cross. Calvary is referring to the place of the skull. Calvary was, uh, if my memory is serving me correctly, was popularized by Wycliffe in his translation of the Bible. Uh, So we hear Calvary, we hear Golgotha, we hear the place of the skull. This is the place. We don't know exactly where it was. We can only pinpoint it to some degree uh, just outside of the city. And in verse 18, they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus in between. All four gospel writers record that Jesus is crucified in between these other two. And an interesting detail about that, is the word that Matthew and Mark use for these robbers is the same word that is used to describe Barabbas. Greek scholars tell us that that word could be translated terrorist. Some of them insist that it should be translated terrorist. And if that's the case, Jesus is crucified between two terrorists. And the irony of it all is Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, who was uh, guilty of treason and murder and robbery, uh, is set free uh, in place of Jesus. So here Jesus is, and what is the point of this? The point of this undoubtedly is to show that the prophecy of Isaiah, which we read last week, uh, has come to fruition, namely the prophecy that the servant who would suffer would be numbered among the transgressors. And here we see Jesus right exactly where the Father wants him to be. Regardless of all of the All of the things that uh, these uh, chief priests are trying to do to stop Jesus, of all the things that Pilate has tried to do and failed to do um, to stop this, there Jesus is right where the Father wants him. Now, as we continue in this, Pilate, we're told in verse 19, writes an inscription and puts it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. If we lived at that time, this would be familiar to us because uh, crucifixion was an advertisement on behalf of the Roman government. What the Roman government advertised is this is what happens to the worst of criminals in our society. This is what we do to them. They would often leave the crucified bodies on those crosses for many, many days. And there would be an inscription, there would be a charge a placard, if you will, that would be either hung around their necks or uh, nailed to the cross in which they were hanging on, and it would reflect the charges that they were guilty of. And what's interesting is Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. There is no crime, actually, to put down. And um, all of the commentaries that I own in my library are agreed that Pilate does this to get under the skin of the uh, Jewish high priests. Uh, it's, some have described it as one last act of revenge against them. He knew that this would really get under their skin. And if you look at verse 21, you see that he is correct. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Now, why are they so concerned? Let's not forget it's Passover. Passover. And the city is filling up with people. This is happening just outside the city. And this would be the talk of the entire Passover. So literally, uh, you know, we don't know how many people would come, how many people uh, would fill into uh, Jerusalem, but I've read statistics of a million point two, one million two hundred thousand people would come into Jerusalem. That's a lot of people in antiquity. There might not be so many today. But it's still, even by today's standards, that's a large crowd of people. And here Jesus is being crucified, and here is this placard that is not just written in Greek. We're told in verse 20 um, that it is written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And what's the significance of that? Aramaic, if we lived in that time, we would be familiar with Aramaic. That's probably when we were, when we were, taught, if we were texting, we'd probably be texting in Aramaic we'd also be familiar with greek because greek was the international language if you will uh, alexander the great when he came in and conquered the known world a few centuries earlier he brought greek culture with it greek language greek music greek art greek philosophy and uh, uh, and that's why we have the new testament written in greek it was a common language so here you have you have the, the sign in in aramaic you have it in greek but you also have it in latin That was the government language, if you will, of the day. That was the Roman language. That was the language that the Romans used. That was the military language. So everyone could read it clearly and understand it. Everyone who could read anyway could read it. And if they couldn't read, it wouldn't be hard to find somebody who could read it to them. And what is the significance of this? The significance of this is that this is beyond the local region The significance of this is that Jesus is a king, and that's the second overarching theme that we have flowing through this passage is the kingship of Jesus. He's not just any common garden variety king either. He is king of the world. That's the significance of this. And again, these folks are writing more than what they realize. They're writing more than they know. Does Pilate understand what he is doing fully? No. Pilate just wants to get under the skin of the chief priests who have put him in this awkward position that we've been studying for the last couple of weeks. He just wants to get under their skin. But what what is God doing? God is revealing the kingship of Jesus in the midst of this. Now, when they come to Pilate in verse 21 and they say, don't write this, we notice that Pilate, interestingly enough, is steadfast. He's been wobbly, hasn't he, as we've studied him. He's wanted to release Jesus, but he's been really wobbly. He realizes releasing Jesus is going to get him in hot water, and his moral compass is just not going up that high. Uh, so what does he do? He hands Jesus over to be crucified. But when they come back to him to change this placard, notice what he puts in. Notice what he says in verse twenty-two: "What I have written, I have written." Notice how steadfast he is on this. He's unwilling to bend. And verse twenty-three: We uh, were taken to another scene, and there the soldiers who had crucified Jesus took his garments. They divided him into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woman, and one piece from top to bottom. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whether it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, what's going on here? Well, we learn that there are four executioners from this text. Why? Because they divided Jesus' belongings into four parts. We also learn that Jesus had five possessions uh, when he died, five possessions. He would have had some type of headband. He would have had a belt. He would have had a pair of sandals. He would have had a robe, and he had a tunic. So these are not all of equal value. So the soldiers cast lots, and this was a custom. The executioners uh, were allowed to take uh, whatever, the, uh, whatever the, um, uh, the prisoner was wearing. And keep in mind, our, the ancients didn't have closets that looked like ours. They didn't open up their closet and try to figure out, what am I going to wear today? Um, they didn't open up their closet to see, oh, I'm going to wear something that fits. Oh, this makes me look, oh, never mind, I don't want to talk about it. They didn't have those decisions. A lot of times they had one or maybe two garments. Uh, So they're dividing these things among themselves. This fifth item, the tunic, would have been um, a garment that would have been worn close to the skin. We're told that it is seamless, woven from one piece top to bottom. They cast lots in order to divide these things. But the important thing that we see here, and for our purposes this morning, is this was to fulfill the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are... Uh, The scriptures that we read this morning from Psalm 22, which were written nearly a thousand years earlier. And what does this show us? Regardless of all human opposition, this is happening exactly the way the Father would have this to happen. We uh, come to, uh, we're still in a similar scene here, but in verse 25, uh, we learn that standing by the cross of Jesus were four women. Jesus' mother is a biological mother, if you will, uh, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now, how many of you have heard of the seven last words of Jesus? Probably many of us, right? Yeah, it's, it's sometimes you'll, you'll even hear sermons. there will be like a seven-part sermon, and it's a survey of the Gospels, and it's the seven things that Jesus says while he's hanging on the cross. And John gives us three of those. And one of them is Jesus' address to his mother and his address to the beloved disciple. And what does he do? In the midst of all his agony, in the midst of all of the suffering that Jesus is suffering, the anguish of the very wrath of God, uh, he still makes sure that his mom is cared for. It's breathtaking, isn't it? It's just still in control. Uh, It's just breathtaking. And there's an interesting detail. We can't be sure. You know, what I share right now with you is just this is something we can't be sure, but it is probable. If you look at verse 25, you see that uh, Jesus' mother is there. His mother's sister is there. Okay, so Jesus' mother is present, but his aunt is also present. We good with that? Now, we can't really take each gospel account and, and map it out to try to determine exactly who Jesus' aunt was because we're told that there were many women present. However, I think it is probable that Jesus' aunt is the wife of Zebedee who would be the mother of James and John. And if that is the case, John, the gospel writer, was Jesus' cousin, as was James' We can't be certain of that, but I think it's probable. It can indeed be quite probable. And that would go uh, a a little ways in explaining the relationship that they had. It would go a little ways in explaining why Jesus chooses to uh, um, entrust the care of Mary with John. Now, someone might ask, well, why why, why wouldn't Jesus' brothers and sisters care for Mary? Well, of course they, they would. But as of yet, they have yet to become believers, haven't they? We learned that from John chapter 7. You know, they still hadn't come to believe. They're going to come to believe. We know that uh, after Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus entrusts his mother with one of the apostles, the apostle John. And uh, in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood, and this would be the second saying from the cross that John provides for us. That's two of the seven. Uh, Jesus says, I thirst. And what's interesting about that, um, many of the things we're going over here quickly could be sermons all in them themselves. And I'm trying to discipline myself not to, Kylie says I talk too much, and I'm trying to behave this morning, because Kylie's right. Sometimes I, I do. Um, she didn't say that to be hurtful, by the way. She, it was really funny, actually. Uh, you had to take the facial expression with the words all together in one package. She, she, she doesn't do very much to, to be hurtful. Um, but it's interesting that Jesus says, I thirst. Jesus is suffering from thirst very terribly. And Jesus is the one that when he was suffering from thirst at the, um, at the at Jacob's well um, and in his discourse with the Samaritan woman, you know, he says to her, you know, give me a drink and, they have that conversation, and at one point in that conversation, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, if you knew who it was that you were talking to, you would ask him for a drink, and he would, give you, he would give you waters, and he who drinks of these waters shall never thirst. And what is interesting is the one who will provide those waters, if you will, those waters that eternally quench our thirst, is here right now thirsting very terribly. He's thirsting very terribly. In order to accomplish this for us, Jesus had to endure such thirst. We're told that a jar full of sour wine was there. This was a common beverage. It was a cheap beverage that the soldiers would use. And they put a sponge. They dip a little bit in a sponge. They raise it up with a hyssop branch. There's a lot of ink spilled over that that they couldn't have used a hyssop branch. And John's in error. And it becomes sometimes, sometimes it just becomes, you know, some of these. I mean, the, the skeptics just don't stop, you know. And um, sometimes in our movie depictions we see Jesus as being crucified really high up in the air and uh, if that's the case, the hyssop branches they the, the argument is they could never have, have held a sponge that was dipped in this sour wine they would have never been able to hold it all the way up there. but in all likelihood Jesus wasn't really elevated all that high. They only needed to they only needed to elevate the, the criminal, high enough that his legs would not touch the ground uh... that his legs would be in and, and, and the position varied we know in 1968 there was an excavation an archaeological excavation where they unearthed the person who had been crucified and he had been crucified really in a, a position that he wouldn't he wouldn't have had to been probably more than this high in order to it was an awful position that he was put in they weren't always put in the same position Um It's no fun in many cases preparing for a message like this because you read a lot of stuff. There's stuff in my library that just makes your stomach turn sour. And um, let me let me speak to that just for a moment. It's been popular in the United States, especially, to really uh, pluck on those strings uh, in order to um, create an emotional return uh, from the audience. you know, I can remember hearing one of my professors one time, he was my Greek professor, you've heard me speak of Dr. Watt. I remember one time he, he was making a point that was just, he was digressing just a little bit, but he said something I never forgot. He said, I don't preach for an emotional return. And, of course, this was almost 20 years ago when he said that, and it was really popular to do that, uh, preach for an emotional return. It's a form of manipulation. To preach for an emotional return. Um, our faith has to, it can't be resting on emotions. Our faith has to rest on the gospel, it has to rest on the facts, it has to rest on the person of Jesus Christ. That having been said, the answer to this isn't to swerve so far that we don't mention any of these things. I think that would be an error as well, because if we lived at that time, we would know this stuff. And perhaps our stomach would turn sour because as soon as we heard about crucifixion, we might think of a time when we were traveling with our parents and we witnessed these crosses along the road. And we saw those things, uh, these horrible, horrible things. But here we find Jesus thirsting, which they're in the sun. You know, they're literally in the sun. They, they cannot even swat flies, you know, your hands are, are you know, either tied or nailed to the cross. You wouldn't even be able to swat a fly on your nose. Or ward off vultures, which was a common form of, of the agony that they endured on the cross, it was from vultures. They would be helpless to be able to ward them off. And the hot sun would be one thing that they'd have to endure, and there Jesus is thirsty. They put a sponge and sour wine The hyssop branch itself might not be able to hold, but the stalk of the branch certainly would hold the sponge, especially if it was just pierced through the sponge, dipped in the sour wine, and then held up to Jesus' mouth, which men have only been about this high. So there's no reason to suspect anything here. This is how it has happened. This is what we've been given. But when, in verse 30, once Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. That's the third word from the cross that John provides of the seven. Jesus says it is finished. Uh, here Jesus gives up his spirit. No one takes it away from him. This takes us back to the opening comments that I made in verse 16b. So they took Jesus. They took Jesus because he gave himself. And he no one took his soul from him. He gave up. His spirit, if you will. Now, in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, we talked about this last week. uh, This would be preparation for the Sabbath. We're told that it's a high day. What does that mean? That means that it's a Sabbath that falls during a feast. It's a Sabbath that falls during a feast. Now, Uh, in order, according to Old Testament law, they need to get these bodies down off the cross or they're going to defile the land. So the Jews go to Pilate and they ask Pilate that the legs may be broken, that they might be taken away. And we might say, well, what's that all about? Uh, About the only mercy you could expect if you had been crucified, about the only mercy that you could expect from your executioners would be from the business end of a Roman mallet, which was a large hammer and what they would do is they would crush the legs because your legs would be how you continued to breathe. Uh, the chest cavity would be, would be compressed, and in order to open the chest cavity, they would push up. And then as they went down, the chest cavity would close again. And uh, asphyxiation is typically how you would die from, uh, from crucifixion. So if they broke the legs, it would only be, it would just be a short period of time. The arms would be insufficient. Uh, They would grow tired of trying to support the torso. Uh, I'm not trying to add any more detail to this than it's necessary to get through it. I know it'll turn your stomach. But in that um, archeological find in 68, uh, they found um, that uh, uh, victim had been crucified. Uh, His legs were actually shattered. Uh, From they can conjecture from this this mallet. Now, what's interesting here is that uh, both of the terrorists, their legs are broken um, so that they might be taken away. But when you look at verse 32, the soldiers, um, I'm sorry, verse 32, they come and they break the legs of the first and the other. Verse 33, when they come to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side. Now, uh, with a spear. Let's continue reading. And at once they came out uh, blood and water, and he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that uh, he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. One, not one of his bones will be broken. And two, again, another Scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And my point here is this is happening exactly the way the Lord would have it to happen. In spite of all human opposition, this is going just as God has planned it. Um, It was important uh, from the writings of Moses all the way uh, back in in Exodus 12 that the Passover lamb was not to have any broken bones. And that's the significance so that Scripture may be fulfilled uh, Jesus' bones are not broken and the amazing thing is even as the soldier plunges his spear into Jesus' side none of his ribs are broken you know I mean it, that would have to be a really... Care, um, undoubtedly I don't think the soldier would have cared but none of Jesus' bones are broken and this is happening all in accordance with scripture um, and and um, lastly, you'll see verse 37, the scripture that says they will look on him whom they pierced. That's from Zechariah's prophecy. Some of us are familiar and say, yeah, you know, I hear I hear about that in the spring. Yeah, that's one of those Easter passages that we look at. It kind of sounds like Easter right now, doesn't it? Uh, but we are allowed to study these things other times of the year, so we don't have to wait until until Easter. But uh, the point is that Jesus is already dead. Some of us will be interested in, in the blood and the water. What is the What's the deal with the blood and water? A lot of ink has been spilled on that. We don't have time to go into too much of it. But I don't think it's referring to the, sac- the sacraments. It's very common that uh, the blood, people will associate that with the Lord's Supper and the water, they'll associate that with baptism. But keep in mind, some are anxious to find the imagery of baptism anytime they find water. So we want to be careful there. We have to let the gospel itself um, you know control our judgments in these things let me just say really quickly and i'll start to wrap this up is that the blood obviously is uh the, the fact the first fact here that we're to understand is that jesus is dead he's indeed dead uh think about our creed that we just recited he was crucified and what dead crucified dead and soon we're going to come to buried he was crucified dead and buried that's that's the, the, the real controlling thought of this passage. Now, many medical doctors, believing medical doctors, have put their, their pen to paper and have written some fascinating things about the medical side of this, and many of you would be interested in that. Uh, but there still hasn't been, uh, um, I think, a universal consensus as to why both water and blood flow out of Jesus' side. But we might ask ourselves this question. Is there some spiritual significance to this? I think there is. Um, one, the atonement. You know, we have so many songs where we sing about washed in the blood or we sing about how we've been, we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. What's that mean? It means we're cleansed by his death. And his blood flowing from his body is an emblem of his death. So we have the atonement. And also in the, the water, the significance of water, I think, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when Jesus talks about water, uh, often there's the, a connection to the Spirit. You know, uh, for the one who uh, believes in Jesus, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Does that sound familiar? And of course, what is that? It's a reference uh, to the work of the Spirit. Um, more on that on another time. There, I, I think I counted no less than nine things that we could say that could occupy us. We, we could spend nine Sundays at least on this particular passage. Uh, there would be a little bit of overlap, but we're looking... We're trying to just take a look at this whole thing. Let's take a look at this very last scene here, verses 38 through 42. We're told that after these things, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. He was secretly a follower of Jesus, but he comes out of the closet now. This was a really risky move for him. Uh, to go and ask Pilate for this. Uh, He is showing himself to be a sympathizer and a disciple of Jesus by doing this. Uh, There would be a mark on his head at this point. And we're told that Nicodemus, we've met him in our earlier studies, he who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, that's verse 39, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. Now, um, we're told in verse 40, they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with spices, that is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, and in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. What's the significance of this? Jesus is given the burial of a king. He's given the burial of a king. You know, interestingly enough, as I was thinking about this and upon learning of the death of Queen Elizabeth, the watching world's going to see something that the watching world hasn't seen in a long time. And that's going to be the burial of a monarch. It's almost practically foreign to us. And especially to um, probably most of us in the United States, because there's such a thrust... Um, I think it's a, a relatively small group of people that are leading it, but there's such a thrust just to throw away all vestiges of tradition and vestiges of anything that is from antiquity. Uh, there's such a disdain for all of that that you will even hear them um, mocking the queen and mocking. I mean, you're gonna, you're, I've already heard two different narratives in regards to her life. One is so favorable, and the other one is just so, it's just so disdaining. And it, it's just listen. She was she she was a woman who gave her life. I mean, some of us are more familiar with the Queen. Is there a perfect family? Of course not. It's a family like our own. Is there a perfect family here? No. And I don't believe there's ever been any books written, you know, on uh, you know parenting uh, uh, parenting advice from the Queen. I don't think that book ever got any traction. But in terms of her commitment to um, to the country of England. Oh, my goodness. And she's recognized as a monarch. And you're going to see, watch the news, and why, it would do us all good to watch just what they're going to do. Um, Here, Jesus is getting the burial of a monarch. Why? Because he is a monarch. And I can't help but to think, if I wanted to make application here and now, I can't help but to think that this is a backdoor way of really crumbling uh, the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is a king, and anything that we can do to destroy kingship will inevitably find it cancerous to our commitment to Jesus as a king. You follow what I'm trying to say? It's kind of like shows like Married with Children. Maybe some of us remember that show. It was a long time ago, but I, I usually use it. I mean, there were a lot of things on that show that were funny. You can see reruns of it. Um, But it really went after the father of the family. And keep in mind, as we destroy the father of the family, we destroy the family. But also, in a backdoor kind of way, we're destroying the father with a capital F, too, aren't we? We're trying to destroy him. And I I think we really need a good drink. I think we ought to all watch these proceedings uh, that we'll see over in England. Uh, and and truly mourn with the people of the UK, but what we see happening here is indeed the burial of a king. Now, the point that I've been making—I've—I've I've, I've got it written very clearly here in my notes. In spite of all human opposition, God's plan of salvation moves perfectly forward. I think that's an important point. I wanted to just make one, really, two points that point and Jesus is king these two points i think we need embedded in our hearts and our minds so so deeply right now as we look around as all of the all of the things are are, are crumbling around us let's keep in mind that that hasn't changed as we watch the news as we look around as as we're led to see all of these things that we see let's keep in mind that in spite of all human opposition, whether it's in the first century or whether it's right now, today, this afternoon, or whether it's a couple decades from now or 200 years in the future, in spite of all human opposition, God's plan of salvation will prevail and it will prevail perfectly. So it's good to be part of it, amen? Jesus is king. The most fundamental profession that we can make is Jesus is king. Or we more commonly put it this way, Jesus is Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us and the confidence that you give us as you work by way of your word in our hearts and lives. Father, there are many lies that are competing for the truth, many lies that are trying to throw us off to the left or to the right, or many lies that are trying to keep us from deciding for you. But here we see it's so clear, we have no excuse when it's so abundantly clear that you so easily, in the midst of all of this human opposition, the most powerful people of the world at that time opposing you, you nevertheless cause your plan of salvation to come to pass perfectly in Christ Jesus. And, Father, we can recognize from that, and we can be strengthened by that as we look at all of the things that are going on in this world, Lord. As we look at the foolishness, as we look at the lies, as we look at the uh, the, the fool's gold that is hold, held out to us every day, O oh Lord, that we would drop you for uh, these temporary pleasures, that we would drop you, O oh Lord, for uh, these silly trinkets, Lord. O oh Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with this thought, that in spite of all human opposition, you are bringing your church, you are bringing your people uh, into your plan of salvation. And it is unfolding perfectly in Christ Jesus because Jesus is King. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.